Advent week three. We've lit, we've now lit three candles. The last candle is lit next Sunday morning, and then next Sunday night we'll light the Christ candle in the middle. I'll be preaching from the book of John this morning. It gets a little confusing because in the book of John, we're going to be talking about John the Baptist. And so I just want you to be clear in this. The person who wrote the book of John is not John the Baptist. John the Baptist was arrested and beheaded and could not have written this gospel. And so um, we're going to be learning some about John the Baptist this morning from the book of John. I'll start in chapter 1. Verse 6, and uh, I'll read 6, 7, 8, 9, and then we'll jump down to verse 19 to hear what John's testimony was. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light, the true light, which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. This is the testimony given by John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny it, but confessed, I'm not the Messiah. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. Then they said to him, Who are you? Let us have an answer for those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, Why then are you baptizing if you're neither Messiah nor Elijah nor the prophet? And John answered them, I baptize with water. Among you stands one whom you do not know, the one who is coming after me. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandal. This took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. May God give us wisdom and courage for interpretation. And may God give us wisdom and courage for applying the truth of Scripture to our lives. Amen. All four of the Gospel writers tell us about John the Baptist. All four of the Gospel writers employ John's voice to tell us about the Messiah. All four of the Gospel writers employ John's voice to tell us to make straight the paths of the Lord. All four of the Gospel writers employ John to teach us. We have a lot to learn from this guy. I think a lot more than we probably have ever acknowledged, really. And this morning, I think the lesson that we have to learn from John is about leadership. And what does it mean to be a leader as a follower of Jesus? See, these guys, these Pharisees come... or Well, first off, I'm going to let the Pharisees off the hook for a second. We have always, as, I, as far as I know, given the Pharisees a bad rap. Jesus argues with them a whole lot, right? Like, he's always getting caught up in argument, arguments with the Pharisees or the teachers of the law or the scribes. Sometimes it's a Sadducee, but 
The thing is, Jesus didn't argue with the Sadducees much because he didn't have as much in common with them. Jesus had a whole lot in common with the Pharisees. And just like your Uncle Joe or your cousin Daryl or whatever, I don't know why Daryl, but your cousin Daryl, <laughs> where you argue about politics with them, you have a lot in common with them. You have this passion and this desire to see politics done in a certain way, right? And you may see things from opposite sides of the aisle, but you actually have a lot more in common than you would probably like to admit. And that's this passion and understanding of politics and how you want to see things done. So it's not bad. It's like me and my colleagues, when we get together, we have arguments about theology, like nuanced ideas within theology. And that's for two reasons. The first is because we're nerds and we think that theology is really cool. And the second is because we believe it matters. What we teach and what we preach and what you hear from us matters. I don't care what you believe. It's not my responsibility to get you to believe something. I am responsible for what you hear. And so my theology matters and I get into arguments with my colleagues. Like, I say arguments, we don't really get upset with each other. It's just, you know what I mean. Serious discussions. (laughs) Jesus was the same way with the Pharisees. So John is... Uh, baptizing people, and John has disciples around him. He's got his own disciples that come around him. Well, you can read in the other Gospels that he says to his disciples, look, there is the one I've been talking about. Go follow him. And so John, some of John's disciples go and become disciples of Jesus. So this guy is out in the wilderness, and we know from the Gospel of Mark that he's wild, like he's dressed in camel's hair, he's got a leather belt around his waist, he eats locusts and wild honey, he he reminds people of the prophet Elijah, and so they're wondering, what's going on, is this guy a prophet, or is he the Messiah, because the things he's saying, he's stirring up this crowd, he's getting people around him, and they were on the lookout, just as we are, for the Messiah, They were watching and watching for this person that they thought was going to come and cause an uprising within their nation to kick the Roman Empire out and save the people of Israel. They were watching and watching and watching for that. They were living in Advent. Just as we are living in Advent, watching for the fulfillment of the kingdom. You will remember that Jesus said, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. That could be translated, the reign of God is now. So the Presbyterians teach a lot about this idea of the kingdom of now and the kingdom of not yet. It's not just Presbyterians that believe that. They talk about it the most. But we as Methodists believe in the kingdom of now and the kingdom of not yet. And so the kingdom of now is this idea that the reign of God is happening. Jesus came and initiated this thing that is happening right now all around us. And we can catch glimpses of it when we see great things, like literally great things happening in the world. Or when you witness some sort of miracle. Or when you witness a reconciling of people who have been estranged from one another. You can see the kingdom of God now. But we see it as though we're looking into a dirty mirror that is dimly lit. You can just get a good idea every once in a while about what it is that you're looking at. Because the kingdom of not yet is what we're waiting for. We are in Advent. We are in waiting for that thing. But remember, there are two ways to wait. There's passive waiting, like you do when you're in a waiting room. 
waiting to go see the doctor or get a diagnosis from the doctor. And then there's active waiting like you do when you're waiting for your child to be born or you're waiting for guests to come over or you're waiting to go to Disneyland tomorrow morning. There's like this kind of active waiting that you do, preparing and working. And so in our preparing and our working, what we're doing is we're cleaning the mirror and we're changing light bulbs so that we can see the kingdom of God in full. We have a job to do. John the Baptist was doing his job and the Pharisees wanted to find out if he was the Messiah. So they sent some of their friends to go talk to him. And John teaches us a leadership lesson. He tells them who he isn't so that then he can tell them who he is. Man, I wish there were more leaders like John the Baptist in our world. Leaders who know who they are not. Too often, our leaders in this world think that the office was created for them. And the truth of it is, the office was created for everybody else. And we as Christians should know that more than most, but there are Christian preachers and Christian teachers and Christian police officers and Christian Uh, community leaders and Christian waiters and Christian chefs and Christian store owners and Christian accountants and Christian attorneys who think that it's about them. It is not about us. John the Baptist said, it's not about me. There's something much greater than me going on in this world and I'm here because of that thing. The greatest leaders know that the thing that they're about is much bigger than them and much grander than them and has a much bigger vision than they could ever even imagine. That's us. That's who we should be. But unfortunately, there are times that I'm chief among sinners in this situation. I forget that it's not about me. It's about everybody else. You want to hear some good news? This church isn't about you. That's good news. This church is about everybody else. And you may be wondering, okay, what's that have to do with Advent? Well, we're talking today, the idea today is to talk about joy. Joy, to me, is more akin to confidence or peace than it is to happiness. Joy is something that gets deep into your soul and just kind of stays there. You can have joy in the midst of grief. Happiness comes and it goes. Joy is kind of like this state of mind, this thing that we have, because we know that we have a Savior who values us. We have a God who values our soul. One time, a long time ago, there was a lady who was engaged to get married. And the two of them had never done the thing that causes her to get pregnant. You know what I'm talking about? You can explain that to your kids later. And she finds out that she's pregnant. And she has this sense that like, There's something sacred about this pregnancy because 
well, because I shouldn't be pregnant, and there's something really sacred about it, and she feels like God is telling her this is a sacred, like, mirac- miraculous kind of pregnancy. Her fiancé, on the other hand, hasn't heard about it from her, but one night he gets this understanding somehow, some God thing goes on, and, and he understands that she's pregnant, and that he doesn't need to be upset about it because this child is from God, whatever that means, he doesn't really even grasp it. And so they get together and they talk, and she's amazed because he's okay with it, and he's amazed because it's still happening. And so they decide to continue on in the process of getting married. They don't break their engagement. And in the meantime, um, there's a call for a census. The governor of the land that they live in calls for a census. And they have to go, the rule is you have to go to your ancestral home, like the place to where all of your aunts and uncles and cousins and second cousins and third cousins and all the people that they married live. And so it would be like... Doniana, it was a small town like Doniana, except everybody literally knows everybody. It's not a big town like Hatch. It's a, it's a small town like Doniana. And so they go to this town where, where Joseph, that's the guy's name, the, 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 the groom's name, that's where he's from. And his family had lived there for generations. Everybody knew Joseph. His family, were they were like incredible carpenters. And everybody knew him. And he knew everybody. And he was excited to go, kind of a reunion of sorts, to see all these people. And so he and his beautiful young bride and her expectancy belly that like just brings life to her face and all kinds of color to her face, they go to this town and he's excited and she's excited to meet his friends that she's heard all these stories about. But the thing is, they just know like they're going to be able to go to his Uncle Tom's house and stay there. And so they go, and Tom's like, no, you, you can't stay here. We don't have room. And Joseph knows they have room. And he's like, I don't know what's going on with him. And so he goes to house after house and relative after relative. And then he goes to like his best friends from growing up. They'll, they'll, they'll help out. Goes to their house, and, and they won't help either. And finally, he's got this really weird uncle that he just couldn't stand when they would get together for Passover feast. And he goes to the uncle's house like as a last resort, and he says to the uncle, Hey, unk, we don't have anywhere to stay. Nobody's letting us stay with them. Can we stay with you? She's pregnant, and like it seems like it's about to happen. And his uncle sheepishly goes, Well, I don't have room for you here either. But you can go out back. There's room back there. The only place in Scripture that the word that is translated in Luke as in is translated as in is in Luke. Everywhere else it's translated as home. There was no place for them in their people's homes. We have a God who places so much value on us that he would be willing to give up all of that power and come to earth and be treated like an animal. And when he's born in human form, it's not just that he's treated like an animal because of where he was born. He was actually laid in the place where animals would eat. 
And more than that, he lived this life amongst us that was like beautiful, peaceful, teaching people how to live the best life and how to stop destroying themselves with the decisions that they couldn't seem to stop making. And, and we showed him the worst of what we could do, which is we murdered a beautiful life because it caused us to be uncomfortable. We are valued that much. And what does that have to do with the kingdom of now and not yet? And what does that have to do with John the Baptist not knowing, knowing who he wasn't and who he was? Is that John the Baptist understood there's something much bigger than me going on here. The something that's much bigger than him that was going on is he understood that the love of God is so big that our value is in our souls because they're created by God. And, and here's the thing. Too many times we forget that there are people in this world and in this room that need to hear that they are valuable just because they are. And we work so hard to prove our worth. What about, what about the workaholic that works and works and works and is addicted to the idea of being a hard worker and making a lot of money so that they can provide for their family, but they're not providing emotionally for their family? How broken is that, that they have to feel like their worth comes from something outside of themselves when their worth comes from God that's within? And what about the wife who looks in the mirror and, and feels like she's unworthy because she doesn't look the way she wants to look? Maybe she weighs a little more than she wants to weigh. Maybe she's been told for a long time that her ears are too big or something. And so she doesn't find the worth that she needs to find. Yeah, you can laugh at that. But what about that? How broken is the world we live in that we think those things are what matters and that's where we find our worth? What about the fact that just down the hill, Monday through Friday, there are girls who won't eat their lunch because they're afraid it's going to make them fat and when they do eat, they go and they stick a spoon down their throat and vomit because they think their value is in their looks. And what about the fact, I read an article just this week about how this time last year there was an elementary school that was had a pandemic of boys playing trump tag. an elementary school where boys were running around and grabbing little girls. They think the value is found in showing their masculinity in ways that is not masculine and is not okay. What about the fact that just down the hill or at any school around, there are boys that are straight up just being called fags? because they don't fit the masculine image. And there was a study done by the University of Florida that I read this week that said 65% of middle school girls have been sexually harassed 
And 55% of middle school boys have been made fun of because they don't fit the image that they're supposed to. And of those middle school boys, well over half of them have been the ones doing the harassing. And when asked, they're trying to show their friends that they're not what their friends are saying that they are. Sisters and brothers, we live in a broken world where people think their value comes from something other than the grace and love of God and the fact that they were simply created. And if that's not reason enough for us to remember, it's not about us. It's about everybody else. Our value is implicit in our creation by our Creator. And our job is to clean the mirror and change the light bulbs so that people know where their hope comes from and where their faith comes from and that they are valuable. I deeply desire to see the fullness of the kingdom of God where we can say to one another, You are valuable where we can remember that it's not about a church budget, and where we can remember that it's not about how big this place becomes and how many people come in here, and where we can remember that we have a mission that's so much bigger than ourselves. Amen. So Morningstar, we're Advent people. We're people who wait, but we don't just sit back and relax. We work because we know that this world is broken. But we know that there is a day coming when through our actions, by the, fulfill, by the filling of the Holy Spirit and the desire to see things put back together, it will happen. And the kingdom will be here and now. And God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May we be those people in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.